As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, welcome. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wozencroft, and today we examine the management of Brendan Rodgers. We'll ask if the Leicester boss is undervalued because of his nationality. Meanwhile, Diogo Jota says adios, senor, at Liverpool. And AFC Wimbledon complete the story of stories by returning to their spiritual home. All that and more on another action-packed game podcast. With me this week, Tom Clark, James Restall and Gregor Robertson. How are you doing, guys? Very well, Hugh. All good, thank you. Bit tired. I've been staying up late, transfixed to CNN. I don't know about any of you, but... <laughs> I, have to. I, I don't want to... I know we don't want to push the Americanization of football, but if CNN were in charge of the Champions League draw... It would be the most <laughs> captivating and enjoyable experience ever. Because I swear to God, I've been watching a guy talk about math and numbers <laughs> for hours, and I can't stop. Honest to God, you think of all those boring Champions League draws, put these guys in charge of it instead, and we'd be absolutely fine. You just need a magic wall. You just need a magic wall, and that's, and that's it. Exactly. Transfixed by the magic yeah. wall. It's been fantastic. <laughs> or you could get them on like the final day of the Premier League season talking about the relegation you know when we've got West Brom you know they're away it's just it's just math they need three goals and you know the goal difference swing it's just math we know that that's just math it'd be amazing honestly I think Sky Sports are missing a trick (laughs) one of the good things is they zoom in on the most sort of obscure places you know states broken down to like these tiny little slithers of a county and he always seems to just hit the right little one on the map. Like it's incredible <laughs> that he just knows by looking, no names there, just shapes. He's like, yeah, let's just go to this place where, you know, 20,000 people live. And yeah, this is how they voted. Strangely, uh, the, the only thing that I found was a bit weird about it. You know, people talk about stats in football, but they were basically sort of working out constantly what either Biden or Trump needs to win that particular place for no apparent reason. You know, it was just yeah, like, yeah, it's the whole thing is trying to predict the future without having any knowledge of what the future is. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like kind of transfer deadline day. You're like, who, who's going to go here? Is he going to go here? And that's going to start a chain of events of sales. Like, we don't know. <laughs> but they fill exactly. it in beautifully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very strange. They'd say like, you know, he, he's got 51%. The other guy's got 48%. But you never know if the remaining votes are 60% this and 40% this. And you're like, right, okay. The, the massive trend having, you know, 90% of the votes in that place already being in will just change. I mean, they seem to predict anything could happen anywhere was sort of the overarching theme of all of their content. Um, but it's, it's part of, a, I guess, a weird day today. Like lockdown starting in the UK. Seems like the US election is going to go forever, basically, because of court cases and legal challenges and all all sorts of stuff you can read in the front of the Times. But it is a bit, <laughs> bit, a bit of a weird feeling, bit of a weird feeling um, seeing you guys this morning reading in the Times today as well. That a sort of a lockdown theme, pay per view in the Premier League could be halted totally during this period. At one source telling the Times it had been a PR disaster, the £14 at 95 being charged for games that aren't already being shown on the likes of Sky and BT. I mean, they've got to surely reconsider this. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the whole the whole thing was just a PR disaster from the start. And I was speaking to someone someone yesterday who's, who's a, a West Ham season ticket holder and the whole the whole kind of complexity of being a football fan at the moment he's kind of bought a season ticket and he he'll get returns on his pay on his, on his payments kind of on a pro rata basis for every game and at the same time he's now expected to fork out 15 pound to watch a game and it's also disproportionately affecting in teams that haven't been picked for the games the live games on sky or, or bt so it's i think it has to be bent 
I think I'd agree with you on, on that one. The men's FA Cup's going to continue during lockdown. Uh, the 10 non-elite clubs in the men's FA Cup will be allowed to participate. However, all the teams in the women's FA Cup are considered non-elite. So that competition is on hold. And I know a lot of people think that's unfair. Tom, w- what do you think? It's certainly a disappointing double standard, isn't it? If in um, if in English football and British football we're trying to push the women's game and give it equal billing and uh, a greater projection, it's certainly disappointing when you consider the size of the clubs in the women's game that won't be playing this competition reflected against the size of the clubs in the men's game that will be playing. It, it doesn't. It doesn't send a great message when. I can't think of the exact names of these clubs in the men's game, but they are very small teams. And, you know, in the women's game, yes, you would argue the followings of some of the women's clubs isn't massive at the moment, but they are big name clubs. They're big teams. And to not have the Premier Cup competition happening in the women's game sets a disappointing double standard, I think, for English football for when in months, years to come, people will be talking about doing more to help the women's game and push the women's game and promote the women's game. I I don't think it's a great look and it was pretty disappointing. And understandably, there was a fair bit of outcry in the women's game about it. I don't know about you guys. Um, James, I'm looking at my social media feed at the moment. This is sort of a general point, maybe a bit off football. And everyone seems to be reacting to the new guidelines with a sort of what about me response. You know, I, I like golf. Why can't I go down the golf course? Hold on a minute. The gym seems fine. Why can't I go to the gym anymore? I want to play tennis with my mates. Why can't I go to a tennis court? You know, everyone's saying their thing is the thing. And the only the only maybe group I have a little bit more understanding with are, you know, grassroots football for young kids where, you know, there seems to be very small transmission during those events, if you want to call them that. But certainly for those groups, you know, it's it's more difficult to take. I think I think it's um, on a on a very serious note. I think there is there's a serious um, concern with mental health um, as a result of these new lockdown measures. The fact that everyone's going to be shut up inside for one month and lots of um, outdoor activities that that people have been relying on um, in recent months are are going to be shut down. I mean, it's it does seem bizarre that I can go for a walk with my next door neighbour under the new guidelines. But uh, if we decide to put a metal stick in our hands and start hitting a ball into a hole, that's not allowed. Um, but it's the, the, it, it's, it, it, uh, it is, it is very difficult. And um, I do think um, there needs to be some kind of relaxation on allowing grassroots sport. It's a point, and I'm sure it's going to be argued by the likes of Robbie Savage over the coming weeks, lots of campaigns for various things. Uh, on social media and uh, towards the government, which I'm sure we'll try and pick up on. But um, just for everyone that listens to the game, we'll be with you all the way through these four weeks and get in touch with any of us on social media. If you want to talk about any of those issues, let's be frank, I'm always available. I'm not very busy. Um, I've got to say quickly, James, you've got your Leighton Orient shirt on, but you, you seem to have started lockdown in Never Neverland. I mean, it's a remarkable room that you join us from. It, it came up on an earlier podcast during uh, during lockdown one. Um, I've relocated back to my mother-in-law's house for lockdown two, where I spent lockdown one. Um, this is my ch- this is my partner's childhood bedroom, which has a lovely Disney motif around uh, the walls, and um, it's uh, it, it's kind of become an, a, a, a sort of home from home, office-wise. Um, so that's that's why. So yeah, in a, in sort of lockdown one podcast, I think probably Tom and Gregor were treated to it. So um, Hugh, welcome to the uh, welcome to the Disney room. It's an artistic household. <laughs> it's a beautifully adorned room. I've got to say, I had to mention it. I had to mention it. Um, look, let's get to the football. Let's get to the Premier League football. Let's get into Leicester City next. They have now made a better start to the season than when they won the Premier League back in 2016. They comfortably beat Leeds and Marcelo Bielsa last weekend. But their manager, Brendan Rodgers, is the focus. After that victory, he, he sort of joked. He said, because I'm a British manager, I got lucky. That's the way it works in these games. And whether that was a shot at fans, whether that was a shot at people like us in the media, not really sure, but he seemed to have, you know, a bit of salty taste in his mouth around how he's been perceived. Um, Do we elevate foreign managers, Tom? I know we spoke about it recently with Frank Lampard, 
But someone like Brendan Rodgers, does he not get the credit he deserves? Because I think a lot of people rate him highly. I'm probably going to wind up people here and almost certainly wind up Gregor. I can see him grimacing already before I've even started speaking. Clearly, the wavelengths we're on, he knows when I'm going to try and wind him up. <laughs> but I think Brendan Rodgers gets exactly the level of credit he deserves at the minute for his career that he's had. I think he is a, he is a good manager. He's at, at the kind of 8 out of 10, 7 out of 10 level of manager, and he's got a very good Leicester team who produce some very good performances like they did against a lead side, you know, with the with the managerial genius of Marcelo Bielsa. But it, it, it's strange to me, this narrative, because to me, it's almost like a kind of top, top level, top of the table, Eddie Howe, where the conversation is often, oh, is Brendan Rodgers underrated? And by that token, to me, that means he is not underrated. It means that you are, are getting the recognition that you deserve. And so... You can't have this conversation all the time and still be underrated to me. He's, he's done incredibly well. But when you look back at his career, you know, he's at Celtic for a long time and achieved great deal. That's basically, you know, flat track bullies just walking into the Scottish Premier League without Rangers and just winning loads of stuff. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Like, <laughs> no, but, and also, we talk about Liverpool as well. We talk about narrative a lot on this podcast. Liverpool cocking up the title when they did is often put down to Steven Gerrard's slip. But they also drop points in a lot of games where you have to say, if Rodgers had managed the team a bit better or, you know, the psychology around the squad had been a bit better, they would have won the title. They should have won the title. And everyone laughs about Steven Gerrard slipping against Chelsea, but everyone forgets that they should have won that the league that year, really. 2-0 up against Palace. 2-0 up against Palace. That have have, has to come back on Rodgers a bit. I'm not... I'm not you know, dumping all over him and saying he's useless. I'm just saying he's, I don't think he's underrated. I think he's rated perfectly at the level he's at right now. I, I would say, in addition to the to the Liverpool sort of choking point, um, I, I had a look back through his last couple of seasons at Leicester. We've, we've had a, a, a failure to qualify for the Champions League from what was quite an unassailable position around Christmas time. Um, we've had a League Cup semi-final capitulation over two legs against an Aston Villa side that were very poor defensively at that at that point of the season. Um, and kind of a general struggle in, 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 in other cup competitions. So I think there is, yeah, I, I agree with Tom. I, 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 I completely agree with Tom in his assessment of Brendan Rodgers, the manager. And I think where, where the next level for him and for Leicester are um, is to win a cup. Um, and, and when they do that, I think he will then get the kind of credit that I think he... Maybe, maybe not, not so much the credit he deserves, but the credit he craves. Fantastic. James, 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 finally got some backup. I finally got backup. <laughs> uh, have some of that. And to be fair, I just remember, you know, he was, he was being a bit salty and kind of sarcastic when he said that after the game. But I, I watched, you know, I watched that game and, you know, managers are interviewed pre-match. And the first question that was put to him was like this kind of fawning sort of, what is it like to come up against Marcelo Bielsa? And, you know, how, what about the impact they've had this season? And he's like, yeah, I mean, you know, he, and he answered it very diplomatically, especially for Brendan Rodgers, this was. He's kind of saying, yeah, look, they're a fantastic team and this, this, that and the other. And they said, but, you know, we we know the strengths that we've got. And the, it's kind of, you know, he's, he's as I said, he's, he's beaten Pep Guardiola's Manchester City 5-2. Uh, beating Arsenal and uh, Arteta, who I, you know, I, I and many other people are saying good things about, and he's now beating uh, Leeds comfortably. And the thing that has been impressive for, about it for me is that they've adapted, they've 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 kind of changed the way they've played a lot. When he when Rogers first got the Leicester job, I remember writing a piece about his impact after Club Well, and within a, the space of like two months, Leicester were making 100 passes more every game. They were dominating possession. He completely transformed the way they play. Against Leeds, they had 32% of the ball. Uh, Leeds played like over 200 more passes than them. And you, there's no doubt. And, you know, it's the same against Arsenal. It was the same against City. They've, they've had so many injuries and they've adapted the way they play. And they've kind of, because they've got the strength of Vardy and Barnes kind of in behind, they've thought, you know, we can sit back a little bit. Let these teams come on to us, and we've got players like Tielemans in midfield who can spring the trap. They're good enough to play through the press of these teams. So I think he's kind of he's shown a bit of a pragmatic streak in this. They're, you know, all those other managers we're talking about, they never bend the will of their kind of their shape of their team and how they're going to approach it. He's shown a bit of a different side to him, I think here. So I, personally, 
I think Rogers is still slightly underrated. I'm not saying it's dr- it's dramatic, and I'd say actually the primary reason for it is 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 the way he's perceived and the way that's probably what he says in the media and the press afterwards, and the fact that he said this backs that up. If he if he was slightly more under the radar when he spoke to the cameras after the game, I think he'd probably be, like his career would have been a little bit different personally. Actually, what got this match and the uh, and Leeds's game against Wolves, which they lost 1-0. Uh, actually, I think both Wolves and Rogers Leicester have sort of almost cracked the way you play Bielsa. Um, because I think both, I think Leeds had seven, uh, 67% possession in both matches. Um, they absorbed the pressure very well um, and then uh, and then and took their chances very well. And if you restrict Leeds, you know, Leeds, Leeds typically under Bielsa have lots of chances, a very poor conversion rate, but the volume of chances they create, they eventually will put two or three in if you completely restrict their, the, the the chances that and the quality chances they can get um you, you frustrate them and, and i think that was i think that was that was the key thing and i think you know rogers does deserve credit for for that but it, but it but there is a pattern emerging i think of how you how you can set up and frustrate a bielsa leads team that that certainly does show tactical acumen and a, a good sign for any modern manager is willing as you say willing to change and adapt but I do, I do then reflect on another game this season that I've talked about before when they played West Ham and were beaten 3-0 or 3-1, I can't remember. But, you know, West Ham did a proper job on them and Leicester looked completely devoid of any ideas. They were just passing it left and right. Tillemans and midfield couldn't find a way through. West Ham were excellent that day and fully deserved to win. And it's that thing of where if you're in a position of Leicester, if you're in that third, fourth, fifth, sixth place, and you are the dominant team in terms of maybe possession, in terms of ability. To me, your success will often come down to those games against West Ham, where they do to you what you do to Leeds, where you they surrender possession, they give it to you, and they say, come and break us down and we'll hit you on the counter-attack. It's fine for Rodgers. It's impressive when Rodgers does it against Leeds and he does it against Pep and he does it in those games. But it's the next stage in being a top manager is when you can counter that happening to yourself I think you know Jurgen Klopp is able to do it at Liverpool he started off by hitting people Manchester City counter-attack he's now able to when they have the possession dominate the win those games as well if Brendan Rodgers is to truly go to the next step level I think he needs to get Leicester playing both types of football and I'm not quite sure that when teams sit back against them he's quite got that right yet and that's why I say I think he's perfectly rated at the exact level he's at I mean do we do, I mean does anyone genuinely think he's of a level higher than Leicester without wanting to get too into you know big six and all this nonsense because it doesn't exist anymore and I don't want to be disparaging to Leicester but do we think he's of a you know should he have been in the running for the Tottenham job instead of Mourinho etc that kind absolutely of Arsenal Man United if you didn't have a link with Liverpool I would say Man United like absolutely every job outside Every job in England, when it becomes available, I think he should be in the running for. Hugh, we don't want to get drawn into your favourite topic, but in you know, do, would would you have him instead of Solskjaer? Yeah, for me personally, I think he's been harshly treated. With all due respect to Celtic, and I think Celtic is a huge, huge club. He did a fantastic job there. I think there are lots of people like you, Tom, that go, oh, it's Celtic and it's Scotland, so you're inevitably going to win everything. But the record that Brendan Rodgers had there was incredible it wasn't just that he won the trophies he was winning every trophy every season he won everything in front of him his team played with a style and the results I think he had almost a 70% win rate I mean he was they they were playing teams off the park and if you look at them now you know it it very quickly is is descended into something that is nowhere near as good as what he had when he was there 51% win record at Liverpool, though, to get 82 points. And then, with all due respect, again, I say to Celtic, to not immediately have, you know, half a dozen offers in the Premier League after doing that with Liverpool shows that he was harshly treated and perceived, I think. And that's the key thing. I think the perception around him, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, he's just an arrogant, cocky guy. He got lucky with Suarez and Sterling and, and um, Sturridge just hitting form. You know, everything was taken away from him in terms of his time at, at Liverpool. None of, no credit really was given to him. Celtic, he did fantastically well, as I mentioned. And he's got a 51% win record so far with Leicester, the same as he had at Liverpool as well, he's doing an exceptional job. The recruitment's been absolutely fantastic, which I know isn't totally down to him as well. 
the style is different, yes, but he's playing with what he's got. You know, he is playing at a level with the team with with all due respect, apart from, in my opinion, Jamie Vardy. I don't really think they've got any, you know, that you'd go top draw Premier League player. But as a collective, they're fantastic. You know, I think maybe Kasper Michael's amongst the best goalkeepers. Tielemans will be in the conversation for central midfield, but I think he's only really emerging into the player we thought he could be this season. Harvey Barnes. <laughs> I love Harvey Barnes. I think he's outstanding. I think they've got a very good squad, actually. And I'm not. I'm not saying that to. Yeah, but, what, but, but I'm not saying they have. A, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying they have a bad squad. What I'm saying is their current on-field performance is very much the performance of the team. You know, it's it's and that's the credit to the manager. You know, in my opinion, I think Leicester should be considered. You know, among those those best clubs and the best jobs in the country because they have they're a very well-run club. They have money to spend. Their recruitment is very shrewd and they don't often get it wrong. And when they do get it wrong, they correct it. I think that's, you know, I, I think it's a good, I, th- I, I think he's, he's, he's in a top job. But the fact that they're still the best player in the last two summers, Harry Maguire and Ben Chilwell now, so one of the best players for a lot of money. So that wouldn't, you know, that's, that's always going to be their sort of Achilles heel. So for him to really be able to challenge, I think he would have to be at another club. But I'm not trying to put him, you know, to, to say he should go to another club. He has a good, very, very good job and he's doing a good job there. And I think he, he's got a chance of getting less than a Champions League this year. The one comparison I would just make with Brendan Rodgers is, again, and it comes back to perhaps a little bit of narrative and things, is Wolves. With Wolves, you talk about George Mendes and all the brilliant players they're allowed to sign. But Nuno Espirito Santo, for me, is more underrated than Brendan Rodgers in terms of management and what he achieves. Because they've probably got, in terms of ability, about the same level of squads and players. And they're both pushing that top six area. You could argue that in some areas, Leicester are stronger in terms of Premier League experience. Wolves have just had to sell one of their best players in Diogo Jota to Liverpool, which we'll talk about later. To me, part of the hype around Brendan Rodgers is created by himself and the narrative. So that's where, you know, Nuno doesn't quite have that because the narrative all around Wolves is, oh, you sign all these brilliant Portuguese players because you've got George Mendes and he doesn't get the credit for his tactics and his management that Brendan I think does so I'd put them on the same level and I think for for both of them and for Rogers, this season is key in terms of how he's viewed if they can push into the top six again show some consistency that's a big that's a big sign for me but then someone like Mikel Arteta is you know roundly lauded Whereas someone like Brendan Rodgers isn't, and I can understand what he's saying in that regard. There are people out there who would say Michael Arteta is a better manager than Brendan Rodgers. Any of you would say that? Well, we know one person who would. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm saying you could, you're betraying you could, now. I'm saying you could see the the fruits of his labour, but there's, it's been of a very short period of time, and I still think you would have seen as, as much of a, an improvement of Arsenal had Brendan Rodgers taken that job. Uh, Tom, James, who would you rather had? Uh, I, I, I'd say Arteta is completely unproven at this stage and it's, it's, not, really, it's not really a fair comparison. Um, but I do think that uh, Arteta's won one more domestic trophy than Rodgers. <laughs> Am I right in saying that? Um, but uh, that's but I, in, but England, I, in England but it, in England in England in England <laughs> yes but we're comparing like for like here but I mean I, but I think um, you know we it's what it's what I said early on I think it, Rogers uh, the, the more more so than finishing in the top four I think I think if 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 Jamie Vardy can be lifting another trophy then I think that's that's that is success for for Rogers uh, so I think it comes down again to I the, my catchword on this podcast this season but the narrative doesn't it so Mikel Arteta is the exciting bright young new thing at Arsenal and has not done anything wrong because he's not had any time to do anything wrong Brendan Rodgers to his credit despite being a fairly young manager in the context of football has had a varied career he's been brilliant at Liverpool he was brilliant at clubs lower down the pyramid then bottled the title for want of a better term then goes to Celtic and is either if you're being lazy like me a flat track bully and wins loads of trophies or if you're Gregor a brilliant manager who does amazing things and now that's what I'm saying and now I think he's at Leicester he's shown his coaching ability shown his managerial ability but he's bang at the level he should be until for this season he proves it proves himself again and creates a new narrative that he can do it at the top level in the Premier League. You don't think he's already proven himself in the job he's done at Leicester? Not yet. Not with that squad. Not yet. I think initially, and also, again, with the narrative... Top the, five the team, finish. 
the team he took over, yeah, but they should have been in the top four. Yeah, but I mean, they're Leicester City and they came fifth. I mean, it's... Yeah, but they were third bad, by is it? absolute mile. Look at that. Don't let, get me started on the team that finished third above them. My God. Um, like, but you know, the team he took over, it was, it was, he, was a, he was a better manager than Claude Puel and he was going to get bet- more out of them, I think. And so it was that that very easy job to take. It was an easy win because the narrative was always it's the same as Arteta taking over after Emery. The trajectory is going to go up. The positivity is going to go up. The talk around you is, oh, it's brilliant. He's got to do it again for me to prove that he deserves that. You know, you guys are talking about he deserves a crack at Arsenal, Tottenham, Man United. I think he's got to do that again this season with Leicester for me to prove that he he's beyond... An even higher level than Leicester City. Forgive me, Leicester City fans. Brendan's going to be having sleepless nights waiting to prove to you <laughs> exactly. Most Premier League managers, managers are. Let's be honest. They're, they're all. They've all got my face on a dartboard. Let's be honest. <laughs> the amount of nonsense I talk on this podcast. I am surprised by your opinion, but I'm sure Brendan Rodgers is going to come up once or twice before the end of the season. But we're right to point out Leicester is a club on an upward trajectory. But how about the next story, speaking of which, 18 years after starting life in the ninth tier, League One side AFC Wimbledon returned to their spiritual home, Plough Lane, the Phoenix Club, emerging after Wimbledon had shot off to Milton Keynes, starting a club in their place. It's a remarkable story. It's a fantastic looking ground. They played their first game back there uh, this week as well. Greg, a fantastic story. Yeah, I mean, I did put in our little group chat earlier that I think it's one of the best stories in the history of English football and I make no apologies for saying that. I think it's extraordinary that in this in that time frame they have done it. And, the, the, you know, I spoke to somebody who was a founding member of, of AFC Wimbledon, uh, Ivor Heller, and he's now the commercial director for a, for a piece I wrote in the Times this week. And he, he kind of said there were three pledges from the from the start, from the, those those early days when they had open trials in Wimbledon Common for players, um, was to be to be fan owned and to stay fan owned because of the way they'd been treated by owners, uh, you know, Sam Amman and the Norwegian consortium who, who he sold them to, and eventually moved the club to Milton Keynes, and the FA who somehow managed to sanction that move. So they wanted to remain fan-owned and have the club in their power, in their hands. They wanted to return to the Football League within 10 years and they got those five promotions in nine years. And the last thing was to return to Wimbledon or the borough of Merton. And they've not only done that, they've returned to a location 200 metres down the road from where the old player lane stood. And you've got, you know, this is a 30 million plus pound stadium that a group of fans have, have have built essentially. They have they have pooled the resources, they you know their expertise, and they've you know they, they're building six hundred homes on an adjacent piece of land that provide half the funding. They uh, you know they've they've basically they came up with with close to eight million pounds uh, from from a crowdfunding and and the issue of a bond, so the fans themselves have raised eight eight million pounds towards us, and they're still seventy five percent owned by the fans, and I, I just think it's an extraordinary story, and it's kind of a, you know a feel good story at a time where there's you know as we say we're living through a bit of a gloomy period, and also in football when lots of clubs are are in serious trouble, and we're talking about what uh, the importance of the lower leagues, and th- these guys have shown how important a club is to its community and what what is what they're capable of, that community is capable of when they come together and work as a collective and achieve something like this. I think it's a massive lesson for football clubs up and down the country in terms of what they can do. And there are teams like Macclesfield and Berry trying to get themselves, you know, on their feet. We've seen FC United and Manchester. We've seen other clubs try and do the same. And I think you're right, Gregor, what makes this so special is the, the percentage owned by the fans and just what has been shown that you can do as a group of fans to improve the position of your club. Go on, Tom. Having been at uh, the the previous ground they were at last season in the rain and cold and a not too pleasant smell of rotting grass nearby, I, for one, am absolutely delighted that they have a new stadium and I hope I I never have to see the old one again. But uh, the point Gregor makes, I think, at the end there is, is is an important one. 
because we have to acknowledge that it's all very exciting that they've got a new stadium, but there's no one in it at the minute and who knows when that will be. But it does it does remind us all, as Gregor says, of the, the importance to the community of the of these these clubs of these size. You know, Wimbledon, you know, in the nineties were a Premier League club. They were up in the top 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 tier. So it should but it shouldn't it shouldn't need that romanticism attached to it for us to put an importance on these clubs. You mentioned Hugh Macclesfield and Berry, they've not been in the top tier, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that those clubs hopefully can have the similar kind of renaissance and comeback uh, that Wimbledon have had. And we just have to hope that they get some fans in this beautiful new stadium soon, because it would be a great shame if all uh, all people like me have memories of that horrible old ground, because it wasn't, wasn't it wasn't a pleasant experience, I can tell you. I remember covering uh, that they drew MK Dons for the first time in the FA Cup, I think back in 2012. And I remember going down to the press day that they had there and it was in I think it was like the training ground was like an old school pavilion and the kind of the like all the national newspapers radio stations broadcasters descended on this small sort of old school pavilion and I think it kind of took them all by surprise the, the interest in the in the fixture and I remember interviewing um, Eric Samuelson who was the chief executive at the time of, of AFC Wimbledon and I said to him you know, it's conceivable. I think they were in League Two at the time and MK Dons were in League One knocking on the door of the championship. And I sort of said, sort of almost hypothetically to Eric Samuelson, you know, there's a lot of interest for this, but what about if you're ever playing in the same division and and how would that feel to you as a club? And he said, well, it's an interesting question. It's one that we haven't really thought about because, you know, MK Dons are, MK Dons are going one way. We're, we've just got into the Football League. And, you know, I think they're ahead of them in the table now in League One and they've and they've been and MK Dons have been in a division below AFC Wimbledon. I think that's the that shows the size of the, of the achievement. The other thing I would like to pick up on as well, um, I've always been amazed by AFC Wimbledon's recruitment because the on, on the pitch, they've always unearthed gems from non-league teams and um, and given players second chances. And Joe Piggott, who scored the two goals against Doncaster in midweek. He was at Maidstone in the conference um, a couple of years ago, having had a number of loans at Football League sides and never really getting going. And they, well, while they were in League One, AFC Wimbledon plucked this guy from the conference. He scored 30 goals in 100 games. Um, I think his middle name is Woosencroft as well, which is, um, which is uh, good for you. <laughs> but, he's, but, it's, but I think they, they, they're, they're a club that do things the right way on and off the pitch um, in many ways. And I, I think I, it, it is just a remarkable story. I think that's an interesting point, James, about the recruitment, isn't it? Because that perhaps gets tied to the narrative, oh, they've worked their way up from the bottom, but they should now be seen as a good, stabilised football league club but they're still doing that kind of clever recruitment. And a lot of clubs at that level could learn from that type of recruitment. And that would help them financially uh, in terms of the current, not, not just in the current climate, but going forward. So many of these clubs that I follow, that Gregor follows as a reporter, you know, they're, they're so often undone by poor decision-making off the pitch, be it on the transfer field, be it on, you know, club level, boardroom level, it shouldn't have to take you to go down all the way to the bottom of the football pyramid to start making clever decisions. Surely now, particularly in this climate, there should be more Joe Piggott's. Um, and I should also say, before I offend anyone from Kingston or you know anyone at Kingstonian, I don't mind offending Leicester City fans, but <laughs> I, I, it, was, it was a particularly grim day for me. So uh, please hold nothing against <laughs> talking about your ground. And if you do ever get promoted, I just hope you build a new stadium. Finally, this stadium transforms their kind of horizons now because, as you say, they were playing at this little ground that they that they they bought Kingstonian and they subsequently sold to Chelsea. Um, now they've got nine thousand three hundred seater. Obviously, we need to wait for fans to come back. It, it's got the, the ability to be raised to twenty thousand. They've got the the biggest uh, kind of conference facilities in the whole in the whole borough. I think you know, a guy I spoke to Ivor Heller saying that you'd have to go to Stamford Bridge for the to, like nearby to find something as as big, um, and he said, you know, this will enable us to find our level. And then he said, and who's going to tell us what that's going to be? Because and he said, because he said this has happened to them before. In 1977, they were elected to the league, and he said within the next ten seasons, we'd done the double over Man United, we'd beaten Liverpool at Anfield, and we'd won the FA Cup. So this is a club with serious spirit, 
And I would not put it, <laughs> put it like beyond the realms of possibility that they will continue to rise now because they have more of an income stream. Whatever happens next in football, there's going to be a review, of course, possible reform in football. This almost underlines how key it should be and it should be a fabric of whatever changes happen that fans are involved. You know, Tom, you're a Lincoln fan, James, Leighton Orient as well, but you, and I'm sure you guys get it more than me, supports a big Premier League club, how much your input could have an effect on, on a team. Definitely, and not just at club level, but also across the league. We've talked about it before, some kind of supporters board that helps make decisions or has a say or helps influence policy. You know, the Gre- Gregor's point there is a fantastic one. There's so many clubs at that level who don't own their stadium, don't own the ground on which the stadium stands, so can't do things like we're going host an event where we're going to make a load of money from the stadium facilities. We can sell off the AstroTurf that's round the corner or we can rent that out to schools, to local teams, to local communities to make money for the club because they own it. And that's that's what's brilliant about the Wimbledon story. And as Gregor says, it stems from fans saying, we're going to take control of this because what that means is that all the decisions are geared towards good decision-making for the club. And, you know, you look at Macclesfield and things like that. That's because the person in charge of it didn't, wasn't interested in the club, wasn't interested in the success of the club and the local community. Football at that level needs to be about more than promotion, relegation, trophies. It's so much more than that. You can have a, a good season for a club at that level, can be finishing 12th, but you've made a massive boat of money by having a few co- you know concerts in the summer on the pitch or something like that you know if you've had a load of uh, weddings or christmas parties in the it sounds it sounds daft but that is true they've made money and they've stayed in the league great season lads well done that but that has to be part of the thinking and it's so important that fans are involved. But that's the thing, Hugh. It's the, the, the scrapping of FA Cup replays is, is one. We discussed this on a podcast about six months ago. But I, I, I think it's, it's something like the average is ridiculously small in terms of your, the chances of a lower league club ever getting that money-spinning replay at Anfield. But these things are lifelines to, uh, to, to clubs. And, and I think the one year uh, in, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but in the, I think in, in, the, in the last 10 years of, 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 of supporting Leighton Orient, I think the only year they actually posted a profit was the year they got to the fifth round of the FA Cup and, and, and got, uh, took Arsenal to a replay. And, and, it's, and it's, it's, these, things are, these things are vital. I also think the importance of fans, I mean, I, three years ago, Leighton Orient were in real danger of going out of business altogether when um, the, the previous owner, Francesco Bacchetti, had kind of lost interest in the club and players weren't being paid. And um, it, 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 I think there was, there, was, uh, there was high court action that could have led to the club being wound up. And what, what almost forced Bacchetti's hand to sell and what also sort of gave the club more national attention was when the fans stormed the pitch with 10 minutes to go in a match against Colchester United and occupied the pitch and got the game called off, or at least they, I think they did actually return behind closed doors and finish the last 10 minutes, which was a scandal at the time. But, they, but the, fact that, the, fact that the, the fact that the fans actually took action and took extreme direct action to go, no, this is not, this isn't, you know, the, the future of our club is at stake. And, um, and it, was the, it, was, it was the action of the fans that ultimately um, was a big part in uh, attracting the investment to the club that, that, that came subsequently. And, that, and our current owners now, um, Nigel Travis and, and Kent T, who are, who've, who've been excellent custodians of the club um, in getting them back out of non-league. Um, but they are also very open. They have regular dialogue with supporters. They have regular Q&A events and they've been brilliant in terms of the initiatives they've come up with to make the club money uh, through the pandemic, such as the Harry Kane shirt sponsorship idea, which is the shirt I'm wearing at the moment. But the, 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 um, it, it's, it, it really, it, ultimately, it's the fans who are the one constant for these clubs. And their 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 their, their role is is is, inc- is incredibly important. Uh, just before we move on, I wasn't really planning to, to put this to you, but since Tom mentioned the uh, since you mentioned the scrapping of FA Cup replay, sorry James, um, I have an idea. It's something I, I I talk about every single year of keeping the money spinning games, but getting rid of replays. Just hear me out on this, right? The draw is made. Let's say uh, Leighton Orient are drawn at home to Liverpool. Both teams have 24 hours to let the FA know 
where they want the game played. So if the if the away team would rather be at home, Liverpool, for example, and the home team would rather play at Anfield, then the game's at Anfield. Both teams have decided they want to have the game at Anfield. If Liverpool don't want to host the game, fair enough, but they make more money from it. Obviously, Leighton Orient make more money from it. And why wouldn't Liverpool want to play at home in front of most of their fans? It gives them a massive advantage and they make more money out of it. But obviously, Leighton Orient make a lot more money out of it than if they were playing at home. However, you have to weigh that up with your fans. Your fans might say, well, we want to have it at home. Brilliant. If the home team wants it to be at home, then it stays as it was drawn. But it just gives clubs in a financial quandary the ability to say to their fans, look, we need the money. We totally understand that you'd rather have the game at home. But if we go away, this could be massive for our club. And then you don't have the issue of missing out on a replay. James, what do you think? If I'm right in saying, James Gearbrand wrote a piece about this uh, a little while ago, um, referencing the situation in Germany, because I think they do this in Germany. I think the, the small, the I think the the teams in the third and fourth tier get the chance to play the tie at home, um, and I think it ended up with a fourth tier team getting to the semi-finals last year because they because ultimately they kind of. The, they rode the home advantage and pulled off quite a few shocks along the way. But I do think, I, I think that is, that is a very credible way of going forwards. Um, uh, if, if they, if that was how, if, if, if we adopted that kind of measure. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I agree, I do agree that sometimes it is, it's, you know, we had Shrewsbury Liverpool last year, which, um, which uh, was, was brilliant because. So would Shrewsbury have turned down? I, I don't think. I don't think. To go to, to Anfield. And, uh, you know, if the, if the club's hierarchy said, we're going to go and take the money, what would the fans think of that? So mm, I think exactly. there's some issues there, Hugh. <laughs> I think there's some issues in there. <laughs> well, listen, I'm not asking a club to annoy all of its fan base. It's, it's up to them, but they've got to explain it. And, and also, I think in that decision, most clubs should have a fan representative around the table while they decide where the game should be. So I think there are nuanced ways of, of going through it. Oh, who's the fan representative? How do you pick the fan representative? Well, you want wow. the supporters' trust, you know. You want the, the head of the supporters' trust or the chair to at least be involved in the conversation. But you're also in this age of project big picture and, you know, squirrel as backroom dealings, relying on clubs like Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea actually engaging with that as a topic of conversation. If they've got a, a game against a, a top six rival followed by a Champions League game in the two weeks after, they're not going to give a stuff about who's making money or what. They're going to pick it as the most convenient for them. You know, if Arsenal, if Arsenal, if Arsenal have got a choice between a way can play at, play at home or go away to Barrow, they're not even going to engage in, oh, who's, how are we going to make the most money for Barrow? They're going to go, well, what's, what suits us better? It would be up to battle though, wouldn't it? Big clubs will want to play at home. Let's be realistic. You know, you've got big games coming along. You want to be at home. You want your players to drive to the ground, to not have to worry about the little changing room at Barrow. And, and you won't even have to contemplate how much money Barrow get because you get much, much more. Let's be honest, Arsenal will get a huge amount more for a home game and the amount of money they would get with fans in and all the extra money spent on merchandise or whatever than going away to Barrow. I think I think when Arsenal went to Sutton United the other year, Hugh, I think they actually uh, I think they actually changed on the bus, or they at least used the bus because they their entourage was far too big for that little changing room at Sutton United. <laughs> so I don't think it matters whether whether it's home or away. It's just an idea, and it's great to know the Bundesliga have backed me up on it because I thought I was. <laughs> I'm, I'm often put down on that argument, but good to know there's some high-profile fans of what I've had to say. Um, just quickly before we move on, uh, a reminder: you can enjoy more of our award-winning sports journalism. Subscribe to the Times, the Sunday Times, as well today. You'll get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Right, let's look ahead uh, to the, a, a massive game, really, in the Premier League this weekend. I wonder, though, how important it is. Uh, last year's runners-up, Manchester City, host the current champions, Liverpool. Like the last few years, many could see it as sort of the, the games that will decide eventually, or a, a big slice of what will decide who the eventual champions are. But I'm not really sure that's the case this year. Tom Clark, I want to start with you. Did you feel 
that this game has the magnitude of a title decider. In the Sky Sports, here we go, this is a massive game, let's get excited about it. Yes, of course it does. It's, it's still the two biggest teams from the last two seasons. There is, of course, the caveat that this season seems to be like one of those strange seasons with, well, could we have another Leicester? I, I have my suspicions that things will level out a little bit as we go along and that these two teams will still be in the mix. Liverpool, particularly, I still think are the strongest team. They've, we've seen how they've managed to perform. Even with without Virgil van Dijk, I think this is a massive game for Pep Guardiola. And for Man City, and we've talked a lot about tactics and managers and how they approach things already on this podcast, it will be fascinating to see how he goes about this match. Because already this season, I think we've seen a slightly more reserved Manchester City. 1-0 win against Arsenal, a few other wins, you know, and Pep talking about clean sheets and things, which we haven't, the narrative around Man City hasn't quite been that in his time there. And so... It, it does seem to me like, I'm not saying he's changing tactics or anything because it, it doesn't get the impression that the overall feel will ever be different from the, the type of football that he wants to play. But I do wonder whether, in a similar way to we see clubs when you drop down a little bit, Chelsea against Manchester United a few weeks ago, that was very cat and mouse and ended up nil-nil. It's such a different dynamic now. Manchester City aren't the all-conquering dominant team. Liverpool aren't that brash bang in your face Liverpool are the fa- favourites Liverpool are the dominant team and I'll be fascinated to see what Pep decides to do in terms of formation system and the players he picks will he play a striker will he play this kind of false nine Ferran Torres type player didn't didn't work great against Leeds so it's a massive game for City um, and I think it is still a top of the table decider because I think Liverpool will win the title. I think I think that these will still be the number one and number two teams in when the table, you know, in May at the end of the season. But I think there is definitely some kind of misfiring at Manchester City just now. And part of that is to do, I think, with injuries. Part of it is to do with the way that they press. It's not. It's just not. It's it's dysfunctional compared to Man City at their peak. And I think that's been the case for quite a while now. Um, but they're not, you know, they're also, you know, Pep Guardiola was saying after um, after the game this week that they're not finishing teams off. They're just not killing teams off in the way they used to. Manchester City used to go and score one, two, three, and four and, you know, put a game to bed pretty comfortably. And it's quite rare for them to do that now, actually. You know, they're not really dominating in games in the same they're dominating possession they're dominating the ball they're not creating chances of the same frequency and they're certainly not taking them I mean obviously Aguero has been a big miss um, so I, I still ultimately I still think that City will be second and Liverpool will be first so I mean can you call that a title decider well it depends what the gap's going to be this year I think Liverpool again will win it quite comfortably so probably not <laughs> James, in midweek in the Champions League, Diogo Jota showed his quality. 23 years old, £41 million from from Wolves during the summer. He's been fantastic of late. He's got six goals in his last four games, but it's just the way that he's started there. He has offered something different to Roberto Firmino, who I think a lot of people were looking at in terms of his goal scoring last year and saying, could Liverpool improve on this? What do you make of Diogo Jota as a player, and what what's the difference between them? I think the I think the the best teams always continue to improve, be it on the pitch or with or in recruitment. And the best the teams that have become the most dominant will always add a add a add a player to improve what looks like is something that's unimprovable. I do think. I mean, what's interesting is the. Uh, I was I was getting getting into the sort of uh, the realms of geekery here, but I, I was um, looking at some XG models uh, last night on Diogo Jota and Roberto Firmino, and um, and interestingly, their um, their XG per game or their quality of chance that um, they have per game last season was very very similar, um, and uh, I think I think he's kind of a, a part of his game. Uh, he's been compared to Mane quite a lot, as people have thought that's where he would kind of go into the team. And I think some Liverpool fans straight away were going, well, hang on a minute, Mane is probably the most informed of, of the forwards. So why would Jota, why do we need, why do we need Jota to come in there? But I think actually um, he, 
offers far more of a goal threat at the moment than Firmino. I think he scored more goals in 2020 for Liverpool than Firmino has already. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's, I think he's, he's got the, he's got the kind of, uh, the explosiveness of, and the, and the skill of Mane combined with intricate play of, uh, Firmino, but with an added goal threat. And I think he's, I think that is where possibly Liverpool needed to improve. Um, and he's, he's brought that. And I think the, the way he was performing last season for Wolves suggested that he would continue his form if, uh, at Liverpool and he, and he's proven that. I don't, I, I don't think he, he can come close to doing what Firmino does. You know, I think, although he's, he's, he is an intelligent player and he can drop into positions, you know, in between the lines or if he's playing through the middle, he can drop, you know, drop deep and it creates space for for uh, for Manny and Salah. So, he's got that, but he's not, you know, Firmino is a wonderful player and like, he's so, so clever. And, you know, Klopp has really doubled down on defending him, especially after that game, you know, Obviously, everyone starts to compare who's going to play in this game now. But he brings something very new and different for them. I think, as James saying, the kind of dynamism and the and the pace and the ability to... It's a third player that can run in behind. That's no bad thing if you've got three rapier quick center forwards, really. Um, if that's what you call them now. He's got that. And he's also got that kind of killer touch too in front of in front of goal. I mean, that little dink finish was with the outside of his left foot was just spectacular. Um so yeah, he's he's quite. I think he's versatile, but that the biggest change is, you know, as well as the fact that he scored goals. This is not going to continue. He scored a goal every forty-one minutes. I mean, that's not going to happen forever. But he's got it's the ability to run in behind, and you know the 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 little check. It's clever too. The little check for the, I think it was Alexander Arnold who played him through for the first goal. The little checking in behind and defending was poor, but he's got the intelligence combined with that kind of pace. I think it's interesting and I'm glad you defended Roberto Firmino because we're going to agree for once on this game podcast, Gregor. So everyone mark the day. Uh, but he is a fantastic and almost even now we've talked about people who are underrated. He, he, to me, still is a little bit underrated, Bobby Firmino. But I'd be interested to know, Gregor, because there will be now this thirst from Liverpool fans. Play Jota, play Mane, play Salah. Let's go and get goals. Is, as a defender, when you've got those three players and you know the three forwards that you're playing against are all going to maybe look in to get in behind, is that easier than having two and one who you know is going to go all over the place, is going to drop into little pockets? Do I go with him? Do I switch? Is that slightly easier? Because it does change their dynamic. If they play just all three of them and they don't have Firmino, Surely that changes the dynamic massively in terms of how you defend against them. Yeah, first thing to say is I'm not sure I ever played against the front three like that with a kind of a team who operated a false nine. Uh, so. <laughs> in the football league during the during the well, 2000s. Surely, well, if, we're being, if we're being simplistic about it, although you know, I'd also say Jota can drop in, and these you know they're all intelligent players, but undoubtedly I hated. I mean, you hate you hate when you're a defender nothing more than having to run back in behind and chase. So speed is the worst thing to come up against. But at the same time, when that's what made it so effective. When you've got a player who drops in and you don't know whether to go in or not, and you've got to try and communicate with the players in front of you to, you know, to shield them or to to mark them, pass them on. There's all those different dynamics going on. That is just a nightmare. So, you know, Liverpool with Firmino doing that. And having Manny and Salah, that you know, it's hard to see how that is ever bettered, how that can be improved upon. You know, things evolve constantly, and if Firmino is not playing to quite the level he has of the past, then clearly there's there is going to be a drive to include Jota. But having having that, you know, the player of that intelligence finding the little pockets of space and still having the speed running behind, pfft, nightmare. I think um, I think the, the the thing is, I don't think. You know, I, I, I would, I, I would, I would also like to have my comments defending Roberto Firmino. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to write him off there as a, as a, as a, as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an attacking player because he, I, I agree with you guys. What he does is brilliant and adds that extra dimension to Liverpool. But my goodness, to have a player of Diogo Jota's quality on the bench to bring on on seventy minutes and go, you know, what, what struck me is in the Premier League games, the, the the late goals he scored, and he's kind of been the guy that's killed games off for Liverpool and got them those got them from a point to three points and it just it almost took me back to like watching you know United in the in the late 90s and when they'd be have they'd start with York and Cole up front you know Arsenal defenders will tell you from that time that particularly in that FA Cup semi-final 
um, they go, you know, they go, oh, great. Well, we've done, you know, they, they, they think, they think, oh God, you know, we've done 60 minutes of York and Cole and now we've got Sheringham and Solskjaer. You know, it was kind of, it's having that firepower in depth, which I don't think Liverpool have had properly because Origi's a good player, but he's not, um, you know, Jota is a, is, a, is a massive upgrade if you're looking at um, firepower in reserve. Uh, and I think that's, that is what I said at the at the start, you know, that's the, that's how champions develop is they, they add something that they didn't have. And, uh, and it gives them an edge that I mean, you know, Ma- you know, Manchester City must 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 wish they had that the the, the firepower in reserve that, that that Liverpool do at the moment. But we must admit that I don't think we saw Jota's level of performance being quite this. So was he not even the the fee was questioned? I know this is only a few weeks back, really, but people were talking about is this that's a lot of money to pay for Jota? I mean, he's been good for Wolves, very good for Wolves. But I think it, a lot of people were quite underwhelmed by his arrival. And now. You know he's fitting into the Liverpool team, and it's obviously been early, it's early, but it, he seems like a you know a really canny signing, and another one, another one off the block that's kind of someone arrives, and you think sometimes if he's questioned, or you think is this you know is this is the player that Liverpool really need? But, you know, I think he's answered that already. I think a lot of the sort of praise for his signing wasn't even anything to do with his ability as a player. It was a lot to do with, we've got someone to put pressure on the <laughs> yeah. front three. They can't rest on their laurels. You know, Liverpool fans almost celebrating that there was someone who was young and hungry and might push them a little bit. I'm sure they weren't expecting this. But I agree with a lot of what you say, Gregor, about his ability to do both. Because I think he can drop in. Strangely, he can drop in as a false nine, but into those pockets that you might see a number 10 occupy. And the fact that he can run in behind is all, you know, big question marks for centre-backs. You know, do you go, do you squeeze him or do you drop off? But I, I think for the weekend, they need Roberto Firmino to try and occupy Laporte and Ruben Diaz. And I, I think he will do that in a way that I know it sounds strange. His ability to hold onto the ball for an extra second compared to Diogo Jota could be all the difference in setting away the likes of Salah, and Mane, you know, gives them the ability to choose their run and because of their speed, really beat their men with their runs. And just that extra second to give give the ball to a player who has managed to work themselves that extra bit of space during that split second, um, I think makes a big, big difference. Um, I also think he, he probably has more impact off the bench, um, Diogo Jota. And also, of course, his ability to play across the front three if there's any injuries or whatnot means it's probably more sensible rather than anything else to put him on the bench. But it would be harsh after a, a hat-trick in midweek and it's going to be really interesting to see how Jurgen Klopp um, works out his team for the weekend. I wonder what his approach will be as well because a point's great for Liverpool this weekend. I know it sounds weird, but... You know, Manchester City, I think I think in their heart of hearts, they will still see as their major rival for the title. And given the gap that's there already, if they just fail to um, fail to lose, then it's fantastic for them, really. So it's going to be interesting. We'll see. But I did want to ask you before we end um, about players like Diogo Jota, who have arrived at a club and made an immediate impact. Maybe not the first, you know, six to eight games, but maybe the first season or two, you know, someone who just came, hit the ground running or just had a massive impact on the club, not necessarily just out on the field of play, but maybe just galvanised the team and other players were playing better and to a higher level because of their arrival. And I think we could do this all day long, but I wondered, Tom, what suggestions you've had? Because you put this one out, didn't you? Yeah, we've had lots of suggestions and they're all far better than anything I could come up with. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to whiz through as many of them as I can. Um, uh, Dave and James are both arguing over Tevez and Paye for West Ham, who was better. Chris obviously says Haaland at Dortmund is a great suggestion. Yasser's got a fantastic suggestion of Jurgen Klinsmann at Tottenham. Not only did he score goals, but with his diving celebration, showed that Germans have a sense of humour. Uh, ben Matchell, our colleague at the Times, points out Christoph Dugary for Birmingham, scored a couple of goals after joining in January that kept them up. Felix says Marion Pahas at Southampton in 1999, which I didn't realise he joined just towards the end of the season. He only scored three goals in six games, but two of them were against Everton in a game that essentially kept Southampton in the league. Alex says Obafemi Martins played four times for Birmingham City in 2011, came on in the 83rd minute of the League Cup final and scored the winner against Arsenal. Grimsby fans, just so that it shows I'm all fair um, in terms of Lincoln supporting, they're giving a shout out to Ivano Bonetti, their superstar from back in the day. Lots of Newcastle fans led by the NUFC blog, 
chaps are highlighting Papi Cisse. 13 goals in 12 games between January and May helped them to fifth place, meaning they got a meaning above Champions League winners Chelsea and they qualified for Europe not bad for 10 million quid uh, our colleague Martin Ziegler is remembering Ian Wright's impact for Arsenal scored on his debut in the League Cup and then a hat-trick on his league debut loads and loads of great suggestions and they're all better than anything I could come up with <laughs> so there you go thank you everyone all of our loyal listeners for bailing me out on that one um, and see if you guys can see if you guys can beat it My, I have a sort of a, a sensible answer and a personal answer um, the, the, the sensible answer is um, Robin Van Persie um, which sort of I mean the, him, him coming to Manchester United in uh, for the 2012-13 season it's one of those kind of ultimate pragmatic buys that's like a short-term boost that ultimately sealed Manchester United's last um, last Premier what turned out to be their last Premier League title and um, and it kind of it was one of those it was one of those things that was a sort of a, a short-term fix but they got a player who'd been brilliant but had had sort of injury problems over his decade at Arsenal and then kind of it was just a perfect storm of him in the, the form of his life um, off the back of a brilliant season with Arsenal um, scored some sensational goals and um, was just an absolute joy to watch and then never really replicated that in the subsequent seasons he was with United either so um, it was kind of it's one of those ones it transformed the club for a season um, if you were looking at a more transformative effect you'd look at you know, Alisson to, to, to Liverpool or Van Dijk to Liverpool recently. Um, on a personal note, um, and it's slightly before my time, but it's one that my dad bangs on about a lot and one that he will probably, uh, uh, I'd be remiss not to mention it, was in 1989. Lake Norient struggling in the fourth division and uh, on uh, along comes a young Kevin Campbell from Arsenal on loan uh, and he scores nine goals in 16 games before going back to Arsenal, by which time uh, Orient are in the playoff places and they win promotion at the end of that season. Um, so I would so there, there's my there's my little personal nod. I think we should we could throw Mitrovic when he first joined Fulham uh, on loan. Kind of end of January, he scored twelve and fifteen starts. Basically, he was supposed to join the Bordeaux or someone in, someone abroad, and it fell through. And basically, Kanovic rang him up and said, "Get yourself down here, pronto." And uh, he got them promoted, so that was a big one. Uh, you know, I think you could. You've got to talk about Kante in this. He was first, the first player since Cantona to the two teams he joined in two seasons won the Premier League. You know, if there's not there's no bigger impact than that. But my my own personal one, we've got to have a personal one, is uh, Lubomir Moravchik, a thirty three year old Czechoslovakian or Slovakian, whatever you want to call it, um, joined in November nineteen ninety eight Celtic. 33. Um, no one had a clue. He came, he'd been playing in France and Germany so clear. No one really had a, knew who this guy, had a clue who this guy was. And he scored two in his second game against Rangers in a 5 on win. And it, within a few weeks, he was doing crazy things like controlling the bomb, ball with his bum. Like, remember, a switch of play, and he would, like, you know, the ball's coming to him. Most people just cushion it on their foot he'd turn around and trap it with his bum so it would like go brrr <laughs> he was just <laughs> he was sublime honestly he was, he could not move he had no pace but he was an absolutely sublime player and you know that wasn't a great it wasn't always a great period for Celtic it was Dr. Joe Vengloss the manager he signed him um, but we went on to win a treble and he was he was just an absolute world of a player played till he was about 36 or 37 for Celtic so he's mine of late you know I, I look at the likes of Bruno Fernandes Edouard Mendy already at Chelsea is is doing fantastically five clean sheets in in six games um, Kepa Aretha Balaga must be looking for new clubs at the moment um but I think a personal one I'll go I'll go for is Ruud van Nistelrooy because it wasn't an immediate impact because we bought him Manchester United bought him injured um, massive knee problem which he had to get back from before we could see if he was any good and it was one of the weirdest signings because it was like will he pass the medical or not will his knee ever be any good and then when he finally got the chance to play for Man United I think it was like 10-11 months after he signed obviously we all know the rest of the story absolutely unbelievable player from day one and everyone was just like well it was all worth it so yeah shout out to Rude. I'll say uh, for my final impact player, but I'm sure there's 
plenty of them out there, um, including these three. My thanks to James Restall, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. Gregor, impact player, I'm sure. All the fans of your clubs will definitely say that. Just depends which, really. No, it's a top no suggestions have come through yet, I must say. I'll let you... <laughs> <laughs> Let's give it the weekend and see by Monday if anyone else is anyone's coming. You're our impact player on the Time Podcast anyway, thanks. Gregor. Appreciate it, gentlemen. Thanks for being with me. And before I go, I've got to let you know, you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times. You can get more of all of our fantastic stories there's so much in there at the moment as well but of course the game out each and every Monday get the latest news go online search at times.co.uk forward slash the game and at the moment you'll get yourself one month free fantastic offer that is we'll see you once again on Monday plenty to discuss including I'm sure Oli Gunnar Solskjaer helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.